Today's sermon text comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 17. It can be found in your pew Bibles on pages 822 and 823. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire, and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray together.
Father, through uh, the Apostle John, the Holy Spirit gives us each a command this morning to see what kind of love you have given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. But to see that, the eyes of our hearts need to be enlightened. And for that to happen, we turn to you. And we ask from our helplessness, but not in hopelessness. Because we know you love your son. And we know that you love those who are in your son and you want sinners to see your son and to be drawn to him. And so when we ask for the sight of our sonship in Christ, we know we're asking for what you want to have happen this morning. My hopes are high. My hopes are high for my brothers and sisters in Christ and for myself, and my hopes are high for the lost in this room. So work now for the glory of your name and the honor of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. So last week we thought about uh, Jesus' uh, transfigurations and we saw that he's actually transfigured twice, right? It's very critical to understand Jesus' ministry in terms of two transfigurations, not just one. We saw he's transfigured the first time on a high mountain. He climbs with Peter, James, and John uh, in order to show them his crown. And then... Uh, We saw also that later in Jesus' ministry, he climbs a very different mountain, uh, the mountain we call Calvary, or uh, in Aramaic, a skull mountain. Calvary, you may not know this, Calvary means a skull in Latin. So he climbs a very different mountain, the mountain of his cross, and he climbs that mountain alone. And he climbs that mountain. This is the amazing thing about the gospel. He climbs that mountain not to lose his cross, but uh, not to lose his crown, but to use his crown. He climbs Calvary, friends. Jesus Christ climbs Calvary not to lose his crown, but to use his crown. That is the kind of king that Jesus is. That's how he uses his power. That's how he uses his authority. That's how he uses his glory. He spends it for sinners on a cross. Now that is an amazing king. Jesus uses both his crown and his cross together to show us that the, kind, the kind of king he is. But you know what? The riches, we have not yet exhausted the riches of Jesus' cross and his crown because those realities that define Jesus' ministry, they also reveal not just the kind of king that Jesus is, but the kind of father he has. Because ultimately what we see from today's passage We saw hints of it last week in the first eight verses. But what we see, friends, 
is that both, Jesus receives both his crown and his cross from the Father. And so those features, those kind of high points of Jesus' ministry, his glory and his suffering, both of those reveal his Father to us. And that's what Jesus' ministry is all about. Do you remember what the Apostle John says in John 1? No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him, exegeted the Father. And later on in John's Gospel, when Philip says, just show us the Father, Lord. That'd be good. We're done. You show us the Father, and I'll go as far as you want me to go with you. Do you remember what Jesus says to Philip without missing a beat? He says, hey, have I been so long with you that you don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 14, 9. So Jesus' ministry, friends, is a Father-revealing ministry, a father explaining ministry, a father demonstrating ministry. And so this morning, as we take in the remainder of Matthew 17, what I want us to do is I want, I want together to be basking in the Father's Wonder and particularly the wonder of the Father's love. And I want to take three measures of the depths of the Father's love with you this morning that are in this chapter. Three, we're going to take three soundings, if you will, of the depths of the Father's love this morning that Jesus' crown and cross reveal to us. You know what, Jesus, the beginning of John's gospel, I keep going back to John 1, at the beginning of John's gospel, Right, John reminds us that to everyone who received Jesus, who believed in his name, receives from Jesus Christ. This is the stakes today, friends. Everyone who receives Jesus Christ, who believes in his name, Jesus Christ, today, not just in the first century, but today, in this room, will give those people, to all who believe in him, the right, the authority to become the children of God, which means to have God as your father. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And so we need to see the father, and particularly what, what about the father would, would produce such an outcome? The father's great love. And it's a love of bounty. So this morning we're going to look at three aspects of the Father's love. The plan of the Father's love, the price of the Father's love, and the prizes of the Father's love. Plan, price, and prizes of the Father's love. Let's think first about the plan of the Father's love. That's the first thing I want you to see. That the wonder of the Father's love, the measure of the depth of the Father's love, is that it's deeper than a feeling. It's much deeper than an emotion. It's a planning love. It's an action love. The Father's love is the story of a plan of his heart. So notice when Jesus comes down the mountain with the disciples, we pick up in verse 9, how Jesus tells the disciples and us very clearly that his suffering is planned. 
Do you notice that? I mean, can you imagine being on the mountain of transfiguration? You see Jesus transfigured. You, you see him with Moses and Elijah. And then you are surrounded by this glory cloud. And the Father's voice comes out of the cloud and says, let me tell you the meaning of what's happening. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well Please listen to him. Such glory. You come down that mountain. What would your mind be full of? It would be full of what do you want to talk about? You just want to talk about what you've seen, at least before you get to the other nine disciples, right? I mean, while you've got Jesus with you on your own, you're just going to be talking. You're going to want to talk about this. You're going to be in wonder and in awe. And Jesus takes charge of the conversation and won't let you do that. Verse 9, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. See what he does? He immediately takes charge of the conversation and says, This vision of my crown does not and must not and cannot obscure your understanding of my cross. My suffering goes together with my glory, and there's an order. There's an order. There's a priority. And Jesus takes charge of that. He's recalling what he said in chapter 16, verse 21, right? Or or what, what Matthew records Jesus said, right? From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. See, the glory is at the end of a lot of suffering. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's reminding them there's a plan. There's a plan that has a sequence. Suffering before glory. Condemnation before coronation and vindication. And he makes the same point in verse 12 after the disciples bring up Elijah. Now, you know, I mean, the disciples are so psychologically realistic. How many times when you've been in a conversation, my friends, and somebody has said something very heavy that you immediately, as your escape route from staying in the heavy comment, uh, ask some kind of detached question? Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Let's talk theology, Jesus. But Jesus takes charge of that moment as well, compares himself to John the Baptist and says in verse 12, But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Reinforcing it again and again. This is the inevitability, not of probability. This is the inevitability of sovereignty. You see, Jesus is going to the cross knowing that his movement toward the cross is according to a plan. But the question is, whose plan? Is it just the plan of Jesus' heart? Or is there something that is there? Is Jesus following the plan of another's heart? 
This is very important to see this. This is at the heart of a Trinitarian understanding of the cross, my friends. So planned by whom? Well, look at verses 22 and 23. What Jesus shows us, look at these verses. And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And notice their response. And they were greatly distressed. Now, guys, this is at least the fourth time just in the course of three or two chapters that Jesus has predicted his death and talked about his death. And do you notice something? They were greatly distressed. It's not that the same strength of emotional response is not recorded in e, uh, with, attached to any of the other prior predictions of Jesus' death. Notice this. This is such a lesson that struck me so much this week. They are not numb to the cross the more they hear about it. They are more shocked by it. And I thought, how different my own heart is. They hear about the suffering of Jesus and they're greatly distressed. And notice what Jesus tells them. That his suffering ultimately is planned by his Father. Let me show you how that is found in the text. Notice what Jesus says in verse 22 in particular. Very carefully Look at verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about... Now, this is key. Notice this. This is different from 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 21. Jesus is filling out the portrait of his cross. He's painting more into the picture. He's growing our understanding of what the cross is. He's using, he's adding to the portrait from chapter 16, verse 21. Notice what he says. The Son of Man is about to be delivered. Do you notice that? Now that's very interesting. And here we go. The gospel in grammar yet again. About to be delivered into the hands of men. Friends, notice two things about it. Number one, it's in the passive voice. The passive voice. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. He's going to be killed by the hands of men. In order for him to be killed by the hands of men, he's going to have to be first delivered into the hands of men. But he does it in the passive voice. So it's clear Jesus is the object of that delivering, not its subject. But if you go back to chapter 16, verse 21, the first summary of Jesus' teaching about his death, notice how Jesus is the subject in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He's the one who goes to Jerusalem. But here there is this vision that he is emphasizing of being delivered into the hands of men. He is the object here. Someone is going to deliver him into the hands of the men who are going to kill him. Who is that? Well, if Jesus is the object, who's the subject? That's the second observation I want you to see. And the breathtaking answer is that Jesus isn't talking about Judas. He's talking about his father. It's his father 
who's going to deliver him up to the cross. The reason Jesus embraced the cross is because he knew that when he was embracing the cross, he was embracing his Father's will for him. Jesus knew that he was about to be delivered into the hands of men by the hand of their father, by the hand of his father, and that what those hands meant for evil, his father's hand meant for good. He's like the ultimate Joseph, right? The ultimate Joseph who can say in the face of the evil that he will personally suffer, you meant it for evil, but behind, underneath, Your wicked purposes against me, my Father meant it for good. Friends, I know you say, where do you get all this from that verse? Well, I'll tell you where I get it. I get it from Romans. When Jesus looked at the cross by faith, this is what he saw above all else, that it was his Father who was about to deliver him twice, Paul uses exactly the same verb to describe the Father's action with respect to Jesus. Romans 4.25. Turn with me there. The reason I'm lingering on this point is because you cannot know the depth of the Father's love unless you know the depth of the Father's plan for the cross. That the cross was not just something that he witnessed Jesus suffer but that he planned it, friends. Romans 4.25. Speaking of Jesus, who was delivered up, notice again, passive voice, delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Delivered up for our trespasses. That's the picture of the cross. Well, who did the delivering? Go to Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 32. Page 944 in the Pew Bible. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. Same verb. In the ESV, it obscures the translation, but it's exactly the same verb. Literally delivered him up for us all. You see, the Father is the deliverer. The Father is the deliverer. The Father is the one who planned Jesus' suffering. Now, who did the Father plan it for? Friends, he planned it for us. The Father, step back from this for a minute, that what Jesus is saying is when he's describing his cross, what he's saying is that this is according to a plan. You notice how what's happening is that when he says this, the the disciples are greatly distressed because they know that Jesus is bringing into the picture that he is not, this is not just his plan, but there's a plan beneath that plan. Why would the cross be the plan for Jesus. That is a shocking plan, right? And we measure how shocking it is by the disciples' reaction. But who is it who benefits from this plan, friends? Who is it who benefits from the beloved Son being made the benighted Son on the cross? Who is it who benefits from this? This is the Son with whom the Father was pleased. How could verse 5 suddenly take us to verse 22 where the same father who was pleased in the son now is planning that his son is going to be crucified, judicially executed as a criminal? How could the same thing be true? 
How could the Father, how could the same Father plan both things, friends? Now, later on, we're going to reflect on how that plan has implications from Jesus' perspective. But right now, what I want you to think about with me is the implications of that for you and for me. Friends, consider that as we look at this cross, that cross was planned by the Father for His Son in order to rescue sinners. That cross was planned in order to rescue sinners because God loves sinners. Now, let me be very clear about what the gospel is not and what it is. The gospel does not say, friends, and you have to listen very carefully to this, the gospel does not say that you are loved because Jesus was crucified. That is not the gospel, that you are loved because Jesus was crucified. You know what the gospel is? You know what the wonder of the gospel is? That you, are, you were loved when you were a sinner, and therefore Jesus was crucified. Jesus was crucified because you were loved when you were a sinner. You're not loved because Jesus was crucified for you. As though the Father somehow were reluctant And the son twisted his arm on the cross, and the father relented and said, okay, I'll love the sinners. Friends, that is not the story of redemption. What's beneath the cross is the plan of the father's heart. Last week, we thought about the plan of the son's heart. But friends, the plan of the son's heart to go to the cross rested from all eternity on the plans of the father's heart to send him there. Why? Because the father loves sinners. The Father loved... The Father loved you, my Christian brother and sister. The Father loved you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The Father loved you when you were His enemy. The Father loved you enough to send His Son to the cross when you were a rebel against the Father. When you were the lawbreaker, when the only thing you were was a child of wrath by nature, when you were a son and daughter of disobedience, that is when the Father loved you. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, that moment right there when you were as far away from God in your heart and in your mind, in your lifestyle, at that moment when you were at the apogee of your distance from God, that is when God loved you. Enough to send his son to the cross because that was the Father's plan. You aren't loved because Jesus was crucified for you, but Jesus was crucified for you because you were loved. Now, either you believe that or you don't, but that's the gospel. That was the Father's plan. And we measure the depth of the Father's love by that plan. Friends, the Father 
The Father, even this morning, is preaching the depths and the wonder of his love. The Father is preaching this morning, not through me, but from the pulpit of his son's cross. When you look at that cross, what I want you to see, what I want you to hear, is the Father is preaching the depths of his love to you from that cross. And that cross is a pulpit. It is the pulpit of his love. And it is good news, friends, good news for Christians. Christian brother and sister, I want you to remember. I want you to remember that it's not, it's not because Jesus was crucified that you were loved by the Father. Jesus was crucified, therefore, Jesus was crucified, therefore you know that you were loved before that. Romans 5.8 but God, dem- well, we'll start at 5, 6. You always got to do 5, 6, 7, and 8, right? For at the right time, while we were still ungodly, or while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still weak, not beautiful, not interested in God, for at the right time, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps one might even dare, uh, for a good man, perhaps one might even dare to die for a good man. But God, verse 8, but God, what, what's his love like? But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see that? There was a plan in the Father's heart to send his Son to die for sinners. Not so that he could love the sinners, but because he loved the sinners. So my Christian brother or sister, if God did that when you were his enemy, how can you or I possibly ever question the Father's love for us? You see how, how offensive our hard thoughts about the Father are? I'm talking to my Christian brothers and sisters. I'm talking to myself. And non-Christian friends and guests who are here, you know the Father is preaching from the pulpit of his son's cross about his love to you as well. And he's saying, come in. He's calling to you from that pulpit today. He's saying, this is the measure of my love. This is the depth of my love. It's not a love that only loves you when you clean yourself up. The nature of my love is it came all the way in, went all the way down, bore all the costs for you, not not because you had responded to me, but exactly the opposite. And when you follow the call of that love to Jesus Christ, your whole life will be beautified. And that brings us to the price of the Father's love, friends. And there's a price for the Father, and that price is Jesus. And there's a price of the Father's love for Jesus, and that price is the Father. Think with me about the the price that the father pays at his son's cross. It is a great, it is a great price. And think 
again with me about how much the father celebrates his son in verse 5. This is my beloved son in whom I are with whom I am well pleased. That is delight, right? I mean, that is, that is such delight. It's not the first time the father said it. He said it at Jesus' baptism, right? We heard that in John chapter 3. We also know that before Jesus began his public ministry, we know from Luke chapter 2 that as Jesus grew, Luke chapter 2 verse 52, that Jesus grew in favor with God. Every day of his life, he was growing. His whole life was was growing, growing in favor with God, incarnate favor with God. No other man, no other human being had ever done what Jesus did every moment because every breath he drew in life, he was pioneering uncharted territory for the human race, for the image bearers of God, claiming the territory of humanity for God. And so Jesus, the incarnate son, grew in favor with God. But you know what? God's delight in his son was way deeper than Mary's womb. Way deeper than Mary's womb. It goes all the way back into eternity. You remember the high priestly prayer, the night before Jesus is crucified when he prays, the very conclusion of that prayer is John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Now get this last phrase, John 17, 24. Because you have loved me from before the foundation of the world. The Father, think about this, friends. The Father plans the crucifixion of the Son whom he has loved from all eternity. For you. For me. And it's that beloved son that God sends into the world. And when he did it, when, when the father sent Jesus into the world, he was sending his very heart into the world. Do you see? He's just sending his very heart into the world. You know, in Philemon, you should never skip the small books in the Bible. There's a lot of goodies in those books. And in Philemon 12, Paul says when he sends the the runaway slave Onesimus back to Philemon. He says, in sending him back to you, I am sending my very heart. Friends, that's what the father did when he sent Jesus into the world. He sent his very heart into the world. And when he delivered Jesus up for our trespasses, you know what the father was doing? He was delivering up his very heart. And when the father did not spare his son, Jesus Christ, the stripes by which we are healed, he was not sparing his own heart. Friends, we need to feel the cost of the sacrifice of the son to the father. Don't you dare think of the father as some kind of detached manager of redemption. When the father, when Jesus says in John 3.35 that the father loves the son, or when the father says in Matthew 17.5, this is my beloved son. Friends, that's all the way in for the son. That is not some detached admiration from a distance. That's love from the one who is love. He is crazy about the Son from all eternity. And that is the one whom he sends to the cross. Think about 
the other fathers in this passage. You notice how every block of text in this passage centers on a father's relationship with his son. Did you notice that? I think Matthew has very carefully organized these units of text. There's Jesus and the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration. What happens when they come down from the mountain? There's a scene, a father and his son. And then Jesus predicts his death, verses 22 and 23. And then what's the very next episode? The very next episode is about the temple tax. But how does Jesus respond to the temple tax? By telling the story about fathers and their sons, the relationship between earthly kingly fathers and their sons. And he's contrasting his father with earthly fathers and his sonship with earthly sons. Think about how much greater the father is than the fathers in both of those other stories. Particularly, think about the father who brings his son, his demon-possessed son, to the disciples. I mean, he wants to bring him to Jesus, I'm sure. And then he finds, when he shows up, he finds that Jesus is on the mountain. So he settles for the disciples, and it doesn't go well. But what I want you to hear is the father's heart. I want you to think about that father's heart. Why did he bring his son to Jesus? He wanted, he loved his son. He loved his son, and his son was suffering greatly, often falling into the water, often falling into the fire. He suffers terribly. Did you see the father describe it that way? And what does this father want for his son? What any father would want for his son to relieve his son of great suffering. That's the burden of the father's heart. That's why he comes. That's why he's so desperate. He wants to relieve his son of suffering. That's, he's motivated. He's passionate for the welfare of his son. And what is the difference between this father and Jesus' father? Friends, Jesus' father sends his son into the most terrible suffering. And don't think that the father who sent his son into suffering, not away from it. Don't think that that didn't cost the Father. Do you really think that the Heavenly Father felt less anguish for His Son when He was silent in the Garden of Gethsemane and silent again on the cross? Do you think the Heavenly Father felt less anguish for His eternally beloved Son than this earthly Father felt for His Son? Of course not. The price the Father paid was very great. Or how about the kings of the earth in the second story, the temple tax story, right? Those are kings of the earth. You know, the kings of the earth, there are many kings of the earth. And those kings have many sons. But there's only one king in heaven. And he has only one heir, only one son. And while the kings of the earth are are free to exempt their sons from the obligation to keep the kingdom going, they, they sit on the top of the pile, of all the provision for the kingdom. No, this father, the heavenly father of the eternal son, what did he do? He sent his son to the bottom of the pile to assume all the obligations of the kingdom, all the weight of the kingdom. He turned the pyramid upside down and its single point rested, the weight of all of the kingdom rested on his son, his only son, his heir. Father paid a great price. Great price. And, and friends, as we're thinking about this, that is a measure. That can, I want to connect the dots. That's a measure of his love for you, my Christian brother and sister. 
And my non-Christian friends, that is a measure of this God who you have despised. He is so good. And when he calls you, he's not scolding you. He's wanting to rescue you. Don't you understand that? Look at that cross. How could you ever think that he was not good? The only way you ever could is if you don't look at it or you listen to people lie about it. But when God himself talks about it, let him be the interpreter of the cross. He says it is for your good. He says it is for your deliverance. He says it is proof of his love for you. Trust him. Take him at his word. But Jesus also pays a price. And his price is the Father. going to literally, literally the cross, the Father's plan literally costs the Father everything. The Son of His love is very hard. And the Father's plan, we measure the Father's love by, by the Father's plan. We measure it by, by the price that the Father is willing to pay. And one of the prices that gets paid is the price that Jesus himself pays and the price that the Father's plan imposes upon Jesus Christ is the Father. One of the strongest emotional windows into Jesus' heart in all the New Testament is in verse 17 in this passage. You notice? When, When the Father, the first Father says, hey, I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't heal him. And Jesus says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Oh, that's strong, isn't it? What explains the strength of that feeling? Who's he talking about? Well, Jesus is talking. He's really talking about the disciples. He's talking about the entire generation, but the power of what he's saying is that he is now seeing that the distance between his disciples and the generation, okay, the the present generation, is not a very great distance. That they're much more like, even though they've spent uh, virtually three years with him and he's poured his life into them, their faith is very small. And it's a picture, isn't it, of Jesus' isolation. To be so alone, even in the center of those with whom he was closest, to not be understood, to not really be trusted, And I think that the strength of what Jesus says here is a window into how the pressure of the Father's plan is bearing on his heart. That the closer he gets to Jerusalem, the more isolated, he knows the more isolated he's going to be. And that isolation is going to culminate in the worst, the most painful, especially to Jesus, the hardest isolation of all, which, which is going to happen on Calvary when he is literally estranged from his father, literally in order for him to fulfill the father's plan that the father has formulated because of his great love for sinners like us, in order for Jesus to honor his father and to carry the love of the Father for sinners into fruition. Jesus is going to have to be forsaken by the Father. He is love from all eternity. He's going to have to become what the Father hates. 
And that weighs on him because he knows the Father's worth. He loves his Father. Think about that second story of the kings of the earth and the sons. It's a great price that Jesus is going to have to pay. It's not only the Father who pays the price, Jesus pays the price. And in order for him to carry out the Father's plan, you know what's going to have to happen to Jesus? The only son and heir of the high king of heaven is going to, on the cross, have to walk away from his identity. He's going to have to give it up. He's going to have to say, no. In order for the Father's plan to come to fruition, in order for the Father's love for sinners to reach its appointed end, I am going to have to forsake my divine rights as the heir of the kingdom, and I'm going to have to make myself the greatest debtor of the king. I'm going to have to bear all the burdens. I'm going to have to lose my father. None of our losses, and they are real, and they are great in life, match that. So what are the prizes of the Father's love? What are the objects of the Father's love? There are two. The first is his son, of course, and then sinners. Two great objects of the Father's love we see in this passage. Let's think first about how Jesus is the object of the Father's love, the first prize, if you will, of the Father's love, his beloved Son, whom he has loved the deepest and loved the longest. But even as I say that, don't you feel a little bit of tension? Or maybe more than a little bit of tension between what the Father says about Jesus in verse 5, excuse me, and then the Father's plan for him made so plain in verses 9 and 12 and then 22 and 23. You know, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And then Jesus saying that the Son of Man must suffer at the hands of men. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men to suffer and be killed and be raised the third day. Is there not a tension? And thinking back to last week and how we thought about 2 Corinthians 5.21, can we really say that the Father was not just loving sinners, but Jesus when he made him sin? Can we say that? Not only can we say it, we must say it. We must say it, friends. We must say it. And in order to say it, we have to see again. We have to stop. You know, you know all we're doing these last two messages is just Gospel 101. It's all we're doing. We're reading our Bible slowly. It's how you read it when you're a Presbyterian. Very slowly. How do you pan for gold, by the way? You just sweep it in there and say, oh, nothing in there. No way, man. Very slowly, very painstakingly. No. We have to say that when the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on the cross, that he was loving his son, that his son was the object of his love. Now, how can you possibly say that? Well, in order to say that, we have to see again what a great and tremendous work it is, what an unfathomably awesome work it is for a holy God to save guilty sinners. 
Friends, it's greater than our minds can imagine. It is not a simple thing for the holy God who is the just to also be the justifier of sinners. For the holy God, the holy, holy, holy God to be the rescuer and redeemer of the ungodly and to justify them in the process. Friends, that takes an amazing work. Friends, it is such a great work. It is like like repositioning the pillars of the universe. It is reorganizing everything. How can that possibly be that the holy God will not simply show kindness to unholy people, but justify them in his sight, forgive them and declare them righteous forever? Friends, that is a great work. If we don't see its proportions, we will not see the necessity of Jesus being the only one who could possibly do it. And that is where the key lies, friends, because when the Father formulated this plan, this plan of his heart to justify the ungodly, there was only one, only one who could bring that plan to fruition, only one who was holy enough, only one who was righteous enough, who was obedient enough and compassionate enough and tender enough and faithful enough, only one in all the universe, and it was the Son. And when the Father entrusted this great and beautiful project of his heart to Jesus and entrusted it to him, He loved his son. He gave him the most important work in the universe. And he loved his son when he did it. When he entrusted the cross to Jesus, he was elevating the crown of Jesus because what the father was saying is, look at him, look at him. There is no one like him. There is no one as compassionate as him. There is no righteousness like his righteousness. There is no faithfulness like his faithfulness. There is no one who loves me the way he loves me. And you see, this is why Jesus says the thing about Christianity, that, that Jesus says the thing that is so offensive about Christianity, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Because no one else is worthy enough to provide a way of salvation for sinners. There is no one like Jesus. And so even in the cross, even in the purposes of the Father's heart to send his son to the cross, you see he's loving the son. He's prizing the son. The love that formulates the cross prizes the son even as he sends his son to the cross because no one else could do this great work of saving sinners. And until and unless we realize that the salvation we have been given is a great salvation that no one else could accomplish, we won't be able to see how much the father was loving the son when he sent his son to the cross but he sent his son to the cross for sinners beloved sinners not sinners who became beloved but because of the cross but sinners who were beloved and therefore the cross happened in the gospel i want you to think about the wonder This is the second prize of God's love, the Father's love. It's us, it's sinners. We are the second prize of the Father's love. Think about what happens in the gospel, right? In the gospel, the Son is made sin so that sinners can be made sons. 
how much must God love this world to bring the good news of that gospel into the world? How much must God love you, friend, to bring that news to your ears and to mine? How much must he love us? Oh, it is a great love. That father's love put his son in the place of sinners on the cross in order to put them in the place of his son at his right hand. The son is made sinners to make, it's made sin to make sinners sons. Now, friends, if you think about how, what the, you know, just, just think about what the father could have done, what else the father could have done. Imagine, imagine the father loving us. Imagine him loving us so much that he sent Jesus Christ into the world to forgive our sins. Imagine that he did that, that he loved us that much to, to send his son in the world to forgive our sins, then to reconcile us to himself, and even to give us eternal life in paradise. Imagine that the Father loved us that much, that he loved us so much that he would do those things, and then, once we're in paradise, provide lavishly for us and even give us fellowship with him, eternally, unbroken, unhindered, unimpeded fellowship with him as so that we could relate to him as creatures relate to their creator or as the redeemed relate to the redeemer. Can you imagine if God did all those things, we would have endless reasons for all eternity to praise him and thank him. But you know what? That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel, what I just said, because God did something more. He adopted us as his children through Christ. He brought us all the way into his heart. He brought us to join him in his bosom with his son and to bear the name sons and daughters of God so that God would not simply relate to us as, as a creator relates to creatures or as the redeemer relates to the redeemed, but friends, as a Father relates to children. You see, that's the wonder of the Father's love. God makes his son sin so that sinners can be made sons. Do you understand the implications of that? For some of you, you hear that, and it's time to click your heels together and jump. And really, for all of us. But there's another group of people who hear this news of God's purpose to make his people his children. Who went, And I'm talking to Christian brothers or sisters, okay? When you hear that news, it's time for you to repent. And let me tell you why. Because we don't interpret the love of God accurately. We are so quick to doubt the love of the Father, are we not? And I put myself at the front of the line as I thought about the way this message was going. I knew that at the end, Mike Francis is repenting and rejoicing. And I'm repenting 
And I want you to join me, my brothers and sisters, I want you to join me in repenting for all of our hard thoughts about the Father when that is his purpose, when that is his plan, when that's the price that he's willing to pay for his plan and that Jesus is willing to pay for his plan and that, and that, and that we, as beloved sinners, he makes, our, he makes his prize by bringing us to, to himself as sons and daughters. Friends, we need to repent of our hard thoughts about the Father's love. We need to repent of all the vague and meager understanding, the unscriptural understandings of the love of God that we allow to shape our lives, that are so shallow and weak that when the slightest trial comes into our life, everything's on the table. We have no right to do that. We have no right in the shadow of this cross to doubt the Father's love for us, ever. Ever. No right to do it. We're never entitled to do it. We're never entitled to punish God for our hardships. Ever. And again, I'm talking to Christians here. It is entirely inappropriate for us to do that. Likewise, friends, a lot of us did not have earthly fathers who loved us well. And it is not right in the shadow of this cross planned and accomplished by the Father's love. It is not right for us to withhold our hearts from the Heavenly Father or to think that he is somehow not able in his great love to fill the little earthly vacuum. And that's what it is in comparison to the spiritual vacuum that the Heavenly Father has worked to fill for us. There is real pain in those earthly relationships. But friends, it is time for you and me to let our Heavenly Father have His way over our joy. To let our Heavenly Father and His love be the voice that determines whether or not I'm going to stand upright in the world and expect great things of the future because of what God has promised to me or whether I am constantly going to be looking back over my shoulders dominated by regret and resentment and bitterness. What way does the cross teach us to look, friends? Forward. Forward. And when that voice rises in your mind and it says, you know what? Your earthly father couldn't be trusted, so you can't trust your heavenly father. You tell that voice to go to hell because that's hell's voice. That's where it belongs. That's not heaven's voice, friends. That's not the voice of the spirit that cries out, Abba. And so it's time to rejoice. It's time to rejoice that we've been given a father who has proven our hearts wrong. It's time to rejoice that God has given himself to us as a father and that our hearts were wrong about him and we should be glad that our hearts were wrong about him and it will change our lives. Friends, it is time for us to rest in that father's love and to look forward to all eternity with him. How deep is the Father's love that deep? Let's pray. Father, again, we believe, but help our unbelief. I pray in Jesus' name.